If you have your Bibles, open them up to Philippians chapter 2. Uh, last week was a great week. I went to a leadership conference at the beginning of the week, and then I went to the Jesus film briefing where they, they talk about just missions and what God is doing all over the world and their commitment to reach people with the gospel. And it just is, was so inspiring. Um, I, I heard a story there about a lady who'd become a believer and had been sharing the gospel in a country that, um, where that doesn't work out. You're not supposed to do that. And uh, some people actually came to her and just said, either you stop preaching the gospel or we're going to kill you. And she said, uh, yeah, I'm not going to stop preaching. And she was killed. And it just I, I thought about just the call that God has given us to live lives that count for the gospel. And I think it's so easy in the United States, it is so easy in our life to get wrapped up in our comfort and in the things that we're pursuing, and we forget why God put us here on earth. And uh, it reminds me in Luke chapter 12, verse 13 and following, there's this story that Jesus tells about these two people that are fighting over an inheritance. And they come to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, uh, tell, you know, sort out this problem with this inheritance. And Jesus just says, man, you need to be careful about greed and covetousness in your life. And then he tells a parable about a rich man who was just being blessed financially and had all kinds of good things in life. And he's just saying, man, what am I going to do? And he says, I'm going to build bigger barns to store all my wealth and my riches. And then Jesus says, you fool, because tonight your life is required of you. And then what is going to happen to all these treasures that you've laid up? And uh, he says, man, that's true of anybody who is not rich toward God. You know, I was thinking that when you think about living a life that counts for the gospel, um, a lot of times, especially just in going through Philippians, you know, you see Paul who gets thrown in prison for preaching the gospel, and, and he just says, I, I, don't, I, I don't care. This is great because my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Any suffering, any difficulty that he goes through, it's worth it because of the, the purpose, the fact that he's living a life that counts for the gospel. And I think about, you know, often you read a book like Philippians and you think, oh, that's for a pastor or that's for a missionary. But the book of Philippians is for every one of us. That is the way every one of us is to live our life. And in one sense, we can think about the person somewhere, somewhere else who's never heard the gospel when the truth is God wants us to be sharing the gospel and evangelizing and reaching um, people in our own family our kids, people in our neighborhood, our neighbors. When you walk into a restaurant, the, the waitress, the, the people that you bump into, you, when you walk into Lowe's and you see people and end up standing in line with somebody, God's purpose for a missionary and a pastor is ultimately no different than his purpose for you. It's just that we do it in a different place. And you do it at work and somebody else might do it in a church. But we are supposed to live lives that count for the gospel. And here's one of the things I love in Philippians chapter 2 is that um, he tells us, uh, so Paul chapter 1 of, of Philippians is talking about the gospel, the priority of the gospel, how people are working on evangelizing and reaching the lost. And then in Philippians chapter 2, he goes through, and, and how do you actually be the kind of person that's going to be powerful in your gospel ministry. And then he just talks about in Philippians uh, chapter 2, verse 1 through 4, 
considering the needs of others more important than yourself. And then he gives the ultimate example of considering the needs of others more important. You have this this section of verses that's so powerful about the nature of Jesus and who he is and what happened when he took on flesh and died on the cross to save people and how he was raised from the dead and how he's going to be exalted and worshipped. And then, so that's the best example is Jesus, but then there are three more examples in this chapter of people who actually live that way. And the examples are Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus. And, you know, we, we often growing up, I used to always feel like, you know, you read stories about Jesus and, and you feel like he's not your example because, you know, it's like he's not like us because he's human, but he's also God. And as we read through the New Testament, we have a tendency to look at the things that Jesus does and just go, yeah, but he's not like me because he's God. And this is one of those theological mysteries because Jesus is 100% man, and he is our perfect example. Because when Jesus lived life, he did not live as a fallen person, but he lived in his humanity, even though in his nature and character he was God. But here we, we follow up with that perfect example, and Jesus is our example. He's our perfect example. But then there's this, this example of these other three people who have a fallen nature. They are sinners. They don't always do everything right. Well, they're like you and me. And so we have this powerful example. And, and, and one of the things as we look at this passage that is so good is we see this example of what we're supposed to be like. And in the Apostle Paul's life, um, we see that he was a living sacrifice. That's what we're supposed to be like. If you want to live a life that counts for the gospel, you have to be a living sacrifice. And then we see Timothy, and Timothy was, was dominated by this commitment to pursue the, in, the genuine interests of the people that God had called him to serve. So Paul's a living sacrifice. Timothy's not living for his own interests, but he's, he cares. He, he's genuinely concerned about the interests of others. And then Epaphroditus gives his life to meet needs. Now, those three qualities, you kind of see them in each of those individuals, but actually all three of them had all three qualities, and we're supposed to have all three qualities. Have you ever wondered, when you read the story, how those guys ended up that way? And I just want to tell you this. It's because they were trained to be that way. Um, they were trained. They, that, that's what we call discipleship. That's the purpose of the church is to train and disciple people. And every one of us should be like that, but we'll be like that when we pursue being trained. And people around us will be like that when we teach them to be like that. And when you just think about God's calling in life and discipleship and how that's reflected in this passage it's powerful. So let's jump in here and let's consider these three things and let's consider these lives and uh, just what God would teach us through this. So let's uh, start by uh, just reading in Philippians. If you have your Bible, we're going to start in verse 12 and then we're going to go through this. It says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now 
not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, I just want to say one thing about that. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That is not work for your salvation with fear and trembling. It's work it out. But there is commitment, purpose, focus. And often we are not people like Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus because we're actually not committed to it and we're not working on it. But this is just saying, no, you need to diligently work this out. But then it goes on in verse 13 and it says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Pleasure. We're putting in all kinds of human effort. That's true. But ultimately, it is God who does a work in us and through us. And, and that's just seeing God for who he is. And that's actually what gives us confidence to do what God has called us to do, regardless of our talents, abilities, strengths, and weaknesses. When we see failure in our life, we don't stop. Because it's God who's working through us. And when we're not adequate to do the things that God would have us do, it's okay because God is adequate. So we're working hard, but we always have in mind who's the ultimate power behind accomplishing everything in life. So let's look at what it says here next. It says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Now Paul's going to look back to himself, and we're just going to see here being a living sacrifice. He's going to look back, and he's going to talk about his life. Let's look at that. He says, and even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, Upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering. So just a little bit about drink offerings. So drink offering was something in the Old Testament, and it's amazing how instructive understanding the Old Testament, understanding sacrifices are for our Christian life. And so Paul, when he's talking about this, they would do sacrifices in the Old Testament. So they would take animals, they would burn them, and they would make sacrifices. So there was a burnt offering was one of the sacrifices. And a drink offering, you'd be burning a sacrifice, and then you would pour out a drink offering on that sacrifice while it would be burned. And so drink offerings happen in the Old Testament. And, and Paul, when he's thinking about this, he actually talks about this when he's killed. And he imagines himself as a drink offering. And it's because he was probably beheaded. And his blood just pouring out would be like grape juice beer or wine being poured out on a drink offering. And here he's talking about these Philippians who had also committed themselves. They were living sacrifices and so he's picturing them and their work for the gospel as a sacrifice. And he's seeing himself also as being poured out as a sacrifice. You know, he's talking about that in chapter 1 where he just says how thankful he is for their participation in the gospel. This is something that they're doing together. And he's saying, I'm glad and I rejoice and you should rejoice. And when you think about what it means to be a living sacrifice... 
um, when I became a Christian, that was actually, as growing up in church, I kind of missed what that meant, the heart element of that. And for me, I could never be a Christian. It's like I knew the truth and I wanted to walk with God, but my life was too valuable for me. And it wasn't until the Lord helped me see that, no, you have to be willing to give up your life to be a Christian. And isn't that what Jesus says when he's calling people to himself? The gospel, the basics of the gospel is that you sacrifice your life. Look what it says. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's just the basic call to be a Christian. That's not a call to be a missionary or the call to be a pastor or something like that. That's just the basic call to be a Christian is that we see that God deserves our life and that we put our life in his hands and we just say, God, I will... I will take up my cross. That is a willingness to die. And I think that's one of the huge problems with Christianity today is people don't have a concept of what it means to be a Christian. It's kind of like as when I was a kid growing up and, and there was this big controversy about rock music and Christians shouldn't, you know, we should only listen to Christian music and stuff like that. And, and, and we would just listen to songs. And if somebody said the word God in a song, oh, that, that's a Christian song. See, he said God. And, and, you know, or, or, you know, Stairway to Heaven. Hey, this is a Christian song. It's about how to go to heaven. <laughs> and there's often that when it comes to evaluating Christianity and the way that we proclaim the gospel and how we think about what a Christian is, we don't actually understand what the heart of it is. And that's part of the problem with discipleship and what God has called us to do and who he's called us to be. But Jesus just says no. Be a living sacrifice, and that's the first step in coming to Christ. Now, obviously, we struggle with that. We don't always live on that level. Uh, Jesus, or Peter denied Jesus, right? And Jesus loved him and welcomed him, but that's the basic commitment of our heart. And so Paul was a living sacrifice, and uh, I just want to ask you a question. You know, it's kind of interesting you know, that's what discipleship is, and that's what Paul was training. And when you think about the Apostle Paul, he actually taught people that. Look at Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. So in the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul's laying out theology, and then in chapter 12 through 16, he's saying, okay, and then this is how that touches life. This is what he says. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. See, that's worship, living your life as a sacrifice. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. And that transformation happens by the renewing of our mind. You know, when I think about that, um, I just think about the fact that that is the purpose of our discipleship. That's the discipleship that we are pursuing. Did you know that that's the purpose of your home? 
is to make disciples. When you have kids, the most significant thing you are doing in your kids' lives, everything that happens in their life as they're growing up is you teaching them to be a living sacrifice, to have a relationship with Jesus. You teaching your kids to live with a commitment to meeting other people's needs instead of their own needs, a commitment to live with the purpose of helping others with spiritual things. You know, there are people who think that their purpose is to make sure their kids are comfortable. You know, you think about the prodigal son, right? So he rebels, he, ta- he asks for his inheritance, his dad gives it to him, and then he runs off and lives a sinful life and wastes all those resources. And then there's discipline and there's consequences that start coming into his life. And eventually, he's eating out of a dumpster because they didn't have dumpsters then, but just the slop that they, the trash that they would feed pigs. And it's then that he comes to his senses. Often, I think we forget what our purpose is in life because there are so many parents that if their kids were in this disaster and they were eating slop, they'd be putting money in their bank account. I at least don't want my kids to be homeless, and I at least want them to have good food to eat. But the question is for that prodigal son, would he have come to his senses if he wasn't eating slop out of the out of the pig pen? And, and I think often we forget why God put us here and what we're supposed to be committed to and what we're supposed to be teaching our kids. I want to make sure when my kids are out on the playground that they have their turn to go down the slide. And if they have some toys, we need to make sure they have all the stuff that they want instead of saying, no, my job is to teach my kids to share to care about other people, to think about what it means to be a believer and a Christian. And you know what that is? Like we need to talk about how that works its way out in our home and what our purpose as parents are. But it's not just our purpose in our kids' life and in our home. That's what we do with people in the church is we're gathering people around. It's interesting discipleship and Bible studies and home fellowship groups, often people think, oh, man, the, the real thing is community. We, we need to be together, and, and we need to share in life, and let's talk to each other, and, and let's, let's uh, hey, this is the thing I'm learning, and we're, we're training and learning all kinds of things. I read this thing in this, this recent book. And we think that it's community and fellowship that is our purpose. You know what? It's not. Our, our purpose is to train people to be disciples, and our purpose is to be trained to be a disciple. This is one of the things I think is cool about the Apostle Paul is he's telling other people to be living sacrifices. Timothy was a a living sacrifice, and so was Epaphroditus. Like he's telling them to do it, but they saw it in his life. That's another problem with our discipleship in the church is often... If we're not living it, how can you teach somebody else to do something that you don't do? And so people, they need to see our words and they need to see our life. And by the way, that's true in your home. Your kids need to see what you are committed to. And you need to be purposeful in teaching them things. I just have a question for you. If the Apostle Paul was showing up for our men's breakfast and he was going to talk about being a disciple, would you come? Um, what if the Apostle Paul did a discipleship group and he's like, hey, I'm going to take six young men and I am going to teach them to, to be who God wants them to be. If, if he was meeting here on Thursday nights 
and he was going to train some people. Would you show up? Um, what about Lydia? If, if Lydia, the very first convert that helped start the church in Philippi, or what about Priscilla and Aquila? You remember Priscilla who helped to, to instruct, she and her husband instructed Apollos more fully. If, if Priscilla showed up to Foothills, and she was going to be here on Monday night, and she was going to say, let me teach you how to share the gospel with your family. Uh, let, let me teach you how to share the gospel with your kids and how to reach your coworkers and your neighbors. Uh, what if Lydia was there and she's like, hey, I, I want to talk about, you know, I was a seller of purple and all that stuff. Let me, let me tell you about how God changed my life. And, and what if she was going to be here on Tuesday night? Would you go? Like, would you show up for that? And uh, one of the things I think about is actually that's what we're supposed to be doing. Because all the things that the Apostle Paul was teaching and training, do you know where we find that stuff? First and Second Timothy, all the books that he wrote in the New Testament, um, all the, the character qualities. You know what, what those ladies were teaching, would teach other women if they showed up here at the church? Do you know what they would be teaching? The things in the Bible. And often we focus so much on some other book or some other philosophy or something else, but the same discipleship that Paul invested into the lives of these next two men now, that's available to us today. We just have to show up, read the Bible, and consider it and think about, now, how do I put this in my life? And so um, God's word should be the priority of our discipleship, and it's how we actually know what a living sacrifice is and who we are to be. And so let me just, this is what Paul, what did Paul tell Timothy? Well, he trained him. We're going to look at Timothy next. But what did he tell Timothy? He said, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, that's an encouragement to obey, to teaching, that's intellectual instruction so you understand it. 2 Timothy 4, 2, his last words to Timothy when he's going to die, he just says, preach the word, be, re be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching." So that's what we're supposed to do. It's funny. Like, I, I'll bump into people who go to Bible studies where all they did was teach the Bible, and they're just like, I don't, we don't need that. <laughs> I, I read that before. It's like they want, they're hungry for something else. That's what we need to be hungry for, and that's what we need. And the reason that church and Christians and families are not what God has called them to be is because that's not what they're focused on. I can't tell you how many conferences I go to that when churches aren't functioning correctly, man, they, they encourage people to grab the latest book. Some, some church growth expert wrote a book, and let's go read that. When churches are having problems, they go away to a conference to get some advice from someone else. And I just wonder, shouldn't our first step to just be, uh, let's just take the Bible, let's open it up, let's read it, let's see what God says, and how do we apply that? So Paul was trained, and Paul was training other people and this is what we see about Timothy. Um, look at verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. And we talked about this a few weeks ago, but you just see how much love there is between Paul and Timothy and, and Epaphroditus and, and the Philippians, and they all just love each other. 
And so you see that, like, those are the biographical details in all of this. But look what he says in verse 20. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So Paul's saying, I'm going to send Timothy, and he's rare because he cares about your welfare. And I love how that, when you think about this in the next sentence, how they go, and the contrast, you can care about the welfare of other people. And the opposite of that is to care about your own interests and not the interests of Christ. So what is the interest of Christ? It's your welfare, your spiritual welfare. Isn't that encouraging to you that that Jesus cares about you and he cares about your well-being and his purpose is that the body of Christ would be building up each other and helping them with their well-being? And the opposite of that is seeking your own interests. You know, that's all over the Bible too. Uh, Do you remember in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, no one can serve two masters. He'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You know, God just says, Zai, you have to be the priority in your life. Anything else you're serving, it's not me. What about James 4.4? You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is, the, is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So this is the thing I think is helpful, is when you think about where do I spend my money, where do I spend my time, what, what occupies the desires of my heart? Is it the spiritual well-being of others? Um, because if it's not, then the interests of Christ are not your interests. See, we could be like the Pharisees. They strained out gnats and swallowed camels. They, they were so committed to tithing the mint and the dill that they were neglecting the weightier things of the law, like, like justice and mercy and love for people and pursuing God's work in their life. They were these judgmental, harsh people who had convinced themselves that they were pursuing the interests of God. When in fact, Jesus says, uh, if you follow them, then they, they travel around, they make disciples, and they end up twice as much sons of hell as themselves. Everybody who followed those religious leaders went to hell. And so, but they were convinced that they were serving God. So for us, I just think this is awesome because we can sit and look at what do we invest in and what do we care about. So this is one of the things I thought about. Um, and this is one of the things I thought about as a parent. It's, it's kind of interesting how it turned out. So, um, Mich- well, I'll just talk about myself. I was not, I almost said something about Michelle, but I was not academically like on the top shelf as a kid going to school. So I realized when I was in high school that um, I had a 2.0, which was my goal, was a 2.0. And the reason that that was my goal is that that's what I had to do to stay eligible to wrestle. And that's all I cared about. I cared nothing about education. And so um, uh, I remember my guidance counselor, you know, going and talking to him, and he just says, you know, hey, I'm going to help you figure out what you can do for a job in the future. And I just said, yeah, show me a list of whatever doesn't require college because I, I hate school. I don't want to go to school. So show me a different kind of a job. Well, I ended up becoming a Christian, 
and go into a church deciding that I want to go into ministry. And I just said to some pastor, hey, what do you have to do if you want to be a youth pastor? He says, we got to go to Bible college. And, and I won't get into that whole story, but I'll just tell you, um, all I did before I went to college was write my name on the time card at the place I worked. And I remember my, my first day in college, I'm going to write a paper, and I'm realizing I can't remember how to form all the letters of the alphabet in cursive, you know. It's like I just hadn't done it for so long, I kind of forgot. And my first year of college, not only did I have to do everything that was due in college, but I actually had to pick up like four years of education that I never got when I was in high school. And I'm so thankful for the guys that were in my dorm that helped me study and, and helped me in those early years of education. So what did Michelle and I do with our kids? I just thought to myself, that was a huge handicap in my life. And so from the time our kids were small, uh, we taught them their alphabet and to tie their shoes and half the stuff that was in the kindergarten curriculum before their first day of kindergarten. And then the other thing is we created a habit where every single day when they came home from school, the first thing they did was to sit down and do their homework. And then I would talk to my kids about the attitude that people have in school. And I would say, this is crazy. You get these people who they go to school and they've dedicated their life as teachers to making your life better so that you'll be able to get a job. And yet you're going to go to school and everybody's going to talk about how they hate the teachers and how they hate homework. It's like this us-against-them attitude toward a person who's given their life to help your life be better. Isn't that crazy? And I'll never forget when Jessica comes home like uh, halfway through kindergarten. She goes, Dad, I'll never understand people at school. They are against teachers who are trying to help them. <laughs> and, um, and so one of the things I thought about also, not just that, but from a spiritual perspective, what were the things I was missing? And, it's, and I'm not trying to brag about my kids, but academically they've all done really well. They graduated from high school with two years of college, graduate, or graduated from our, the one that's the slowest. He, he graduated high school on time, but then he graduated from college in two years. But, um, you know, just, and just looking at that, our kids have done well in that. Why? Is it because they're smarter than me and Michelle were? No. It's because they were trained. It's because we focused. We thought that was important. And it reflected itself in their life. Um, what about their spiritual condition? You know, one of the things I thought about is when I became a Christian, it was super hard for me to be disciplined in reading the Bible. So when my kids were young, I started teaching them to read the Bible. I wanted to create, they're not even Christians. And I'm teaching them to read the Bible. When they went to the nursery and somebody grabbed toys from them, I didn't go to the nursery and say, hey, don't let people take my kids' toys. I started teaching them. This is, hey, you need to share. You need to care about other people more than you care about yourself. And all these things that were a bad habit in my life and that were hard for me after I became a Christian, I thought, how do I help my kids not have those struggles before they have those struggles? Try to, instead of trying to fix somebody after, how about we fix them before? And did you know that's what Sunday school is supposed to be? Like discipleship and all those kinds of things. Anything you didn't teach your kids that you wish you would have taught your kids, you should show up and be a Sunday school teacher so that you could help somebody else's kids not have those struggles. All the things that you wished you would have done differently in your life, 
you should be discipling and training. That's why the older teach the younger, because we help people with things before we face, they face them. That's discipleship. That's what Paul did, and we use the Bible to do that. And Timothy sought the interests of Christ or of, of Christ because that's what he was trained to do. I just want to say something small about Timothy. Timothy had all kinds of problems. You know, these guys didn't have it all together. Did you know that, that Paul writes First and Second Timothy, and, and how do you know what Timothy was struggling with? Well, what did Paul write a letter about? He had false teachers in the church, people teaching things they weren't supposed to teach. Timothy was commissioned to be a teacher, and he had let that gift grow cold. And Paul says, stir it up. Go back and start teaching again. Um, he had unqualified elders. Paul's writing to him about, hey, Timothy, don't just take somebody the first day you meet them and make them an elder. Some people, you notice their problems immediately. And other people, you don't notice it till later. And by the way, these are the qualifications for an elder. And Timothy, women aren't supposed to be the ones mainly teaching in the church. And so, like, when you look at Timothy's church, everything about it was out of order, and Timothy wanted to quit. Like, if you were to just get a theologically faithful place to go evaluate Timothy and his ministry, you would have got an F, and somebody would have said he should probably be fired. And Paul says to him, Timothy is discouraged, feeling like quitting, and Paul says, hey, like I told you before, remain on at Ephesus. Don't leave. You stay there and you put things in order. And so the whole idea that well-trained people are perfect, that is not true. Well-trained people struggle. And in the body of Christ, when we're struggling and when other people are struggling, we love people, we come alongside, we encourage them, we build them up. And then we send them out. And often in the church, we beat people up, and we're hard on ourselves, and we're hard on other people. Instead of just being gracious and realizing, hey, we all mess up. You know, it's not a surprise when we don't live the way we're supposed to live. That should not be shocking to anybody. That's life. That is us. And what should we do? <laughs> we step out of line. We just need to get back on track. We repent. We say, God, forgive me and help me do the right thing. And the whole body of Christ is supposed to reflect God's attitude toward people who are struggling. The way, same way God's loving and merciful and gracious. That's what we're supposed to be for each other. And we spur one another on and just keep going. So, you know, the body of Christ, man, we're supposed to be this loving, gracious, kind group of people. Here's the third thing we see a living sacrifice, somebody who genuinely pursues the interests of Christ, and somebody who's committed to meeting needs. Look at verse 25. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother. Man, that is like this loving commitment in the family, a child of, a fellow child of God. You see that all through the book of Philippians, just how loving people are. A fellow worker and a fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he's been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. <laughs> so Epaphroditus is sick. We're going to find out he's almost going to die. And he finds out the Philippians find that out. And he knows how upset they are. And he wants to go back and just say, I know you guys love me so much, but I'm okay. It's like he's upset that they're upset about the fact that he's sick. 
Indeed, he was ill near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. You know, that, that thing right there in the middle is just, it's that view of God's sovereignty. That whether or not Epaphroditus lives or dies is something that's in God's hands. He's ultimately in control. That's the we work really hard, but it's God who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's just understanding that God holds everything in, in his hands. All our efforts, every circumstance that we face, it is all God's sovereignty and God's power. And that's what helps us keep going when we fail. That's what gets us through any trial we face is we know that there is a good powerful, loving God holding everything in his hands. And so we can keep going. And actually, we're not even defeated by our own failure because we know that God is more powerful than we are. And he's the one ultimately that brings things to pass. Verse 28, I am more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. Verse 29, so receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ by risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. You know, there is so much going on in all of that. They want to serve him, and he's going to go serve on their behalf. He's going to go meet Paul's needs on behalf of his home church. But I just want to say, you know, honor such men. There are so many people in ministry and in churches that are actually not committed to the work of God or to God's work. They're committed to themselves. We've all seen all those scandals about people who are stealing and taking advantage of people and, and just all this stuff. You know, Paul doesn't say honor everybody who says God. No, we need to, we need to be focused, and we need to support missionaries that are giving their lives for the gospel, that are focused on things that are important, that are teaching truth, not just anybody who wanders here or there. And, and it's pretty actually a bad thing when we support the wrong people. But we should make sure that we're supporting the right people. We should be willing to sacrifice anything to financially help people's lives work. So there was this guy that was in our church, and he came to our church, not this church, but my last church from Zimbabwe. And uh, he studied in seminary, and he was a very gifted teacher, did a lot of discipleship in the church. Like when you talk about spiritual gifts, man, he worked them out in our church body. And so you're just thinking about, well, what kind of a missionary do we want? That guy. The stuff he's doing in this church, we want that in another country. And so he married a lady from Germany and had a couple kids and went to Zimbabwe. And he's just drinking muddy water and needed a filter. It was just like, okay, how much? We don't, we don't even care. It's like, you know, how much? You just tell us how much we're buying you a filter. And he had to drive 26 hours to get food from South Africa because he couldn't get food where he was. And people there can live on 250 bucks a month. Man, you know, that's like less than a car payment. Supports him fully. And so we need to find people that are committed. And by the way, he could have very easily gotten a job in churches here. They would have loved to have him. Those are the kind of people that we find and that we support. Such men. And he willingly risked his life. For the gospel. Uh, trusting God. 
So as we think about this, by the way, that is who you and I are supposed to be. We're supposed to be this. This is what we're supposed to be training in the church. This is actually what you're supposed to be training in your home. And um, we need to be living lives that count for the gospel so that what we do matters. We need to be living a godly, faithful life. And that's what we train And often we fail, just like Timothy, and and a lot of times we're not all that God wants us to be. And, uh, you know, that's that's not a surprise when that happens. And what do we do when that happens? We just repent and get back on track. And so I just have a few questions for you to kind of think about yourself a little bit. Have you failed to do any of these things in your life? Have you failed to develop this kind of character in your own living? Is this what you've passed on to your kids? Do you ever value a person's temporal, temporal well-being over their spiritual well-being? Have you ever been worldly-minded instead of heavenly-minded? Have you ever gone into your neighborhood, your grocery store, or a restaurant without being broken-hearted by the mind and mindful of the spiritual condition of the people around you? Um, have you ever failed to use your time, money, and gifts to serve in building up the kingdom of God? Because that's actually what God wants from every one of us. And so I would say, if you have, hey, we're not surprised, right? (laughs) We all struggle with that stuff. So what do we do? Well, we just repent. And we say, God, forgive me and help me to do better. And we make a plan and we just start working on it. And then we're very thankful for our standing before God, which is based on the righteousness of Christ, not our own righteousness. We're very thankful for God's grace and compassion and forgiveness, and God's power to bring us to maturity. We're really thankful for the body of Christ where we're not hard on each other. We don't beat up on each other. We love each other. We encourage each other. And um, we encourage one another to continue toward, toward maturity in Christ. And when we fail, we don't give up. We just deal with things and get back on track. So can we pray for each other? Can we encourage each other? Can we reevaluate our own priorities? And basically just ask the question, um, just ask the question, are we living lives that count for the gospel? Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for your word. Lord, I thank you for your power to work even when we're not all that we should be. God, thank you that we can look at these men that received training and we look what their lives were like. And God, we see what we're supposed to be like. And God, thank you for giving us the curriculum that resulted in people being that way. Lord, thank you for the Bible and the fact that we can be trained by the Apostle Paul. We can be trained by you because we have your word and we have the things that Paul used and that all the other leaders in the Bible used. And Lord, help us to be focused on knowing and understanding your truth and putting that to practice in our life. We ask these things in your name. Amen.